Well, the protests that erupted in Iran over the death of a young woman in custody of the so-called morality police more than two months ago now, back in September, well, they continued over the weekend. They've had really impressive, incredible, really lasting staying power, considering just how severe the countrywide crackdown on the protests has been. Uh, Iran's regime is being challenged in a way that it is not seen, really, since the Islamic Revolution back in 1979. Uh, And it's not just people in Iran that are being targeted for retribution by the regime itself. Uh, The vocal support for the ongoing protests also finds Iranians around the world, the diaspora, uh, rising up, calling for change in Iran, defending and supporting the protesters. Uh, And it finds Iranian Canadians in the regime's crosshairs, with some saying that they're being threatened, monitored, even followed by affiliates of the regime right here on the streets of Canada. Reports earlier this month state that Canada's spy agency CSIS is actually investigating what it calls multiple credible death threats from Iran aimed at individuals here in this country. Prime Minister Trudeau was asked about it. He said he's aware of reports that Iranians are, quote, interfering with the lives of Canadians and that his government is monitoring the threats. We are constantly watching and evaluating the threats posed to Canadians by foreign interference from a range of countries, but obviously Iran uh, is uh, a significant uh, concern these days with not just the extraordinary heroics of women and girls in Iran standing up to that regime and all the support they're getting from Canadians and from people around the world. But we also know uh, there are significant concerns about uh, Iranians uh, interfering uh, with the well-being of Canadian citizens here in Canada. Now, imagine this is a regime that is threatening people here on the ground. Oftentimes, those threats are can be veiled or indirect. Um, they often involve family members back in the country. We've seen other countries do the same thing. Um, but it is something, the big question is, how do you put a stop to it? How do you end it? Well, calling it out is probably the best way of beginning, at least. It's good to see that uh, investigations are underway. But what else can we be doing? How? What does the problem look like? How can we help? Joining me now with more on that is Kaveh Sharouz. He's a lawyer and human rights activist, a senior fellow at the McDonald-Laurier Institute as well. Thanks for your time tonight. Really good to be with you, Ben. For listeners who may not have been following closely to what's been happening, these protests continue, uh, do they not? Uh, absolutely. This is the second month. We're entering the third month of these protests. They seem to be continuing, um, and the protesters, or revolutionaries, as I call them, uh, seem undeterred despite the violence that the uh, Iranian regime has unleashed on them. And it seems like the regime is continuing to up that ante, right, as, as time goes on. We don't hear as much about it as we did in the early days in terms of the um, the, the, the response from the regime to the protests themselves, uh, but they are getting more and more the tactics they're using are getting more and more indiscriminate. One gets the impression. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they have used live bullets when faced with protesters. They have detained at least 15,000, though that number may actually be much higher now. Uh, 15,000 people probably torturing a great many of them. They've sentenced several to death and maybe sentencing more. And most alarmingly, in the last few days, they have really militarized their their attack on the Kurdistan region of Iran. So they're sending military vehicles into Kurdistan and shooting live bullets and really treating it as if it was a civil war. So all very, very worrying stuff, even though, as you say, we're hearing less about it um, in the mainstream media in the West. 
for listeners to understand, of course, uh, we we call it Iran, but it's made up of multiple different ethnic groups, um, the Kurds being one of them. um, And a lot of the early protests started in Kurdish areas. In fact, in fact, uh, Masa Amini is a Kurd, right? You know, this regime has been brutal to everybody, but it's been uniquely brutal in some ways to the ethnic minorities, including the the Kurdish population. And it's always used the rhetoric of, you know, we're trying to put down separatists as a way of, of attacking. It has now adopted that same language saying that if this regime falls, you know, this country is going to be broken up and ethnic separatists are going to tear this country apart. So they're using this language and it seems almost like they're trying to provoke a response from the Kurdish minority um, in order to paint this as a civil war situation. Right. A, a, a familiar tactic, of course, right, as you Absolutely, point out. Yeah. Now, I've noticed, of course, I mean, people like yourself, but all around the world, um, Iranians have stepped up to try to support the protest, to try to amplify what's going on inside the country. The regime sees you and others as enemies in all this too, no? Uh, I hope so. I would, it would be a great honor to be seen as an, as an enemy of this particular regime. But yeah, I mean, this regime is incompetent in a great many ways, but it's very good at one thing, which is to keep tabs on what happens in the diaspora, try to create divisions and to try to create fear in the diaspora. And they've been very busy at work in the last couple of months, especially. And we were reading recently about uh, a CSIS investigation to what they called credible threats. In fact, the prime minister addressed the very issue, credible threats against members of the diaspora here in Canada, Canada from the Iranian regime. How common? I mean, I imagine you're not surprised, but how common is that and how does it manifest itself? I'm terrified, but not surprised. This is a regime that has, for four decades, carried out a number of assassinations abroad. So, you know, those of us that are in that see ourselves as being part of the opposition know very well that this regime has assassinated dissidents in Germany, let's say, or in France, the United States. And just last year, the FBI revealed that it had planned to kidnap a very well-known activist, a friend of mine named Masi Alinejad. Right. Uh, the plan to kidnap her and actually take her back to Iran to, uh, you know, essentially to, to murder her there. And in that process, it came it came to be known that there were at least three Canadian targets to that as well. Um, so it's very chilling to hear this news in terms of how they do it. I mean, you know, dissidents here always assume that their devices are being hacked or their attempted hacks on their devices. People know sometimes that they're being watched, like, you know, information gets conveyed to them that, you know, somebody knows where they live, what their house looks like, who their family is. So, you know, the, the regime has a way of sending messages of, of fear and, and, you know, threats to dissidents abroad. We talk so much about China these days, you know, police stations abroad and so on. How does Iran manage to operate with impunity within countries like Canada or the US or in Europe? Uh, how does it how does the regime manage to intimidate with seemingly with a fair, fair amount of impunity within these yeah. other countries? That's a good question. And I don't fully know the answer to that. Um, you know, there are countries where Iran has embassies, and I think the embassy is probably a hub for for this kind of activity. Canada does not have an Iranian embassy, but what Canada has had for, I would say, you know, 10 to 15 years now has been a policy of basically rolling the red carpet out for anyone that has money to invest in Canada. And what that means in the case of Iran is that people that have done well under this regime, and those are often people that have ties to the regime, have had a very easy time coming to this country, bringing their assets here, bringing their money here. And in that mix, I'm sure, are people with uh, ties to the regime that want to do nefarious things in this country. And so that, I think, is the basis of this infiltration of Canadian society. This is something that activists have been sort of screaming about for years, frankly. I've been in meetings for years and years with Canadian officials telling them about this risk and no one's taking it very seriously. I'm glad that it's finally being listened to. 
Yeah, because recently that was one of the keys to the recent announcement. Uh, we have not declared uh, the Revolutionary Guard a terrorist group, which is something that we'll talk about in a bit. But it seems there has been a recognition that there are members of the regime here operating freely, spending money and so forth. And have we done enough to try and stem that or at least try to curb that? No, I don't think we've done enough. But the first step to correcting that problem is recognizing that we have a problem. And I think we've finally achieved that after many years. So the prime minister and his government seem now aware of the fact that people with ties to the Revolutionary Guards or other Iranian government institutions are here. As you mentioned, you know, they bring their money here, they bring their families here, and they create risk for people that don't have those affiliations or that are opposed to the regime. Having done that, now I think the important thing is for the government to provide proper resources to our intelligence agencies and our law enforcement and to provide support and mechanisms for people to protect themselves against the regime. Kaveh Sharouz is with us this half hour, a lawyer and human rights activist and a senior fellow with the McDonald Laurier Institute. We're talking about the ongoing uh, protests in Iran, um, as well as a CSIS report that came out recently or a report that came out recently uh, that CSIS had been looking into what they called credible threats of violence against Iranian dissidents in this country. Um, Kaveh, we've been talking a bit about, about declaring, and you wrote just wrote a paper on this actually with Marcus Kolga, who was sort of arguing for the Russian side and you on the Iranian side about why we should declare uh, the Revolutionary Guard a terrorist entity. What difference do you think that would make and why haven't we done it? So let me take that question and divide it into parts. So first of all, the, sure. the Revolutionary Guard is a terror entity by any right. any understanding of terrorism, right? This is an organization that is incredibly violent to, the, to its people at home, but also indiscriminately violent um, abroad. A lot of the assassinations we, we talked about before the break abroad have been carried out by various arms of the Revolutionary Guards. This is the same entity that shot down a civilian plane, uh, PS752, that, you know, that had a lot of Canadians on board. So it uses indiscriminate violence. By any definition, it's a terror group. What we need is to actually list it as such. And, you know, our prime minister, deputy prime minister, had a press conference a while ago where they actually referred to the IRGC as a terror group, but they didn't list it as such in the under the criminal code. Listing this group as a terror organization would make it effectively illegal in every way to deal with it, to affiliate with it. And it would allow us to capture a much wider network of people and institutions that deal with the IRGC, which we currently, uh, you know, they would not be. They would not be caught. One thing that makes this policy a little bit difficult, I admit, is the fact that you know people are conscripted into the IRGC. So right. some people have to serve the IRGC against their will. But I think you know we can do some careful drafting. People can provide evidence of the fact that they were conscripted, and we can sort of carve them out of the definition. But I, I really think it would put much more pressure on the organization and give our law enforcement much more power if it was listed as a terror group. The hesitation, though, to do so, and again, it, it, people point to the conscription. Uh, notion of it, but it seems like a bit of a, it's it seems like it's a bureaucratic thing. You could find a way around that if you wanted to. I mean, the Americans have done it. I just I'm I'm still confused as to why we wouldn't specifically after the after the downing of that Ukrainian Airlines plane. Yeah, I mean that's a great question. I don't know the answer to that. I think it's really an absence of political will to some extent. And at this point in time, given everything we've seen from the Iranian regime, I don't know why that political will is lacking. As you say, the Americans have done it, and the the sky has not fallen. Government officials that we were meeting with before this revolution started a couple months ago, they said a lot of the a lot of things were really hard to do, impossible to do nearly. And yet now that there's political will, they have done it. You know, they've placed at least 10,000 IRGC members, Revolutionary Guard members on the sanctions list. They, they said this couldn't be done before. They have listed a lot of civilian leadership of, of Iran on the sanctions list. They said this couldn't be done. I think things can get done if our politicians get behind it. But for whatever reason, um, I think the Trudeau government is still a little bit reluctant to take this one additional step. 
Which is interesting because we've done a lot uh, over Ukraine. Uh, clearly, Iran now has a increasingly, seemingly has an increasingly prominent role in that war uh, on Russia's side. I was I was reading something last week about Iran facilitating the recruitment of Afghan special forces who've been trained by the West to go fight in Ukraine. As all these different issues are colliding geopolitically, internally in Iran, externally in Ukraine and Russia, where do you see this going? It feels like a very strange time for Iran, period. It, it, it is a very strange time. I have no doubt in my mind that this regime is going to fall. When it will fall and the method by which it falls and how brutal it will be, but this regime will fall. I hope that the international community comes to that same understanding and comes to support the opposition as it tries to topple this regime, precisely for the reason that if this regime falls, I think you will begin to see so-called sort of peace dividends in a lot of other places. So you just mentioned the Russia and Ukraine issue. Iran is implicated in that now. You know, Iran is providing drones to Russia, among other things, in order to kill Ukrainian civilians. Iran has proxies that basically make peace impossible with Israel and Palestine. It is deeply engaged in the civil war in Yemen. It's engaged in destabilizing Iraq, right? The whole region is held captive by a dictatorial regime, a theocratic regime in Iran. If you can topple it, replace it with a democratic government, you're going to see a much, much better international actor in, in Tehran, and you're going to be able to solve a lot of problems that have seemed uh, almost beyond solution up until now. I guess the real challenge is trying is is enabling or seeing that happen without the country itself devolving into something chaotic. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think this is one of those places where the opposition has an important role to play. The opposition has been quite divided up until now, I have to admit. There is a real push now to kind of unify opposition leaders, both inside and outside the country. And there are some key things they can do. They can sort of guide this revolution away from violence and towards civil disobedience. That's really my hope. The other thing that I'm counseling everybody to do, and I hope this happens, is for this um, sort of leadership group, if it comes together, to start signaling to Iran's military forces and its security forces to put down their weapons. The sooner you put down your weapons, the more likely it is that you're going to get amnesty. They have to signal that, you know, we will try only the, the people with the most blood on their hands and the top officials of the regime. I think that's the way a revolution succeeds is by breaking off the armed forces of uh, the regime that you're trying to topple. Well, Kaveh Sharus, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it tonight. Real pleasure, Ben. Thank you so much.